Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the state historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward, and in this episode, Great Finds Inside and Out, two segments take you inside the Connecticut Historical Society, and one takes you outside to movies under the stars. First up, The Great Find. A pair of 18th century portraits comes up for auction. Should the Connecticut Historical Society make a bid? This is a behind-the-scenes story in more ways than one. Today I'm at the Connecticut Historical Society visiting with Chief Curator Eileen Frank. Hello, Eileen. Hi. We have a story in the summer 2016 issue of Connecticut Explored about a great find at Norwalk Historical Society the discovery that a late 18th century high boy in their collection was made by Woodbury, Connecticut furniture maker Zimri Moody, the only work by him known to exist. And the people there were quite excited about that find. But you have a great find story, too. In fact, we're standing in front of these two new works just added to the collection. And you described this acquisition as a kind of a detective story. This is a great story of going from skepticism to belief. And, you know, we have great relationships with antique dealers across the region and uh, members of our collection committee also uh, are on the lookout for us. And so back in October of 2015, we were notified that An auction was taking place in Maine in November and that the catalog listing identified them as a pair of portraits of Aaron Chapin and Mary King Chapin of Hartford, Connecticut. And so this definitely caught our eye because Aaron Chapin is a cousin of the well-known Eliphalet Chapin, one of Connecticut's amazing uh, furniture makers. And Aaron was a furniture maker in his own right. We have a couple of pieces by him um, or attributed to him, and, and but there's no known image. And so the chance to uh, have a portrait of this man and connect a face to the works he created was was really was really fabulous for us. But you always have to be doubtful of uh, what a auction catalog says. You know, how did they know that this was Aaron and Mary uh, Chapin? And could we really verify that? And were we willing to take part in this auction? So that was that was the dun 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 part of the of the detective story. <laughs> and, and you learned too that there was a handwritten note on the back of one of the portraits that kind of raised the stakes. There's a note behind the portrait of the woman and it's it's in script and uh, it says Mary King married Aaron Chapin September 11th 1777. And then in a very different handwriting, it's pretty obvious that there are two different handwritings. It reads grandmother of Aaron Lucius Chapin. So we had to sort of do some genealogy to make sure this was the right family that we were looking at. But even more so, it's pretty easy to attach a note to an object. So was that note authentic or was someone trying to pull someone's leg or they just, you know, misidentified it? That was a big clue that these really might be Aaron and Mary. Who did you consult with on whether Connecticut Historical Society should try to purchase these? Our collections committee, and definitely uh, Kevin Farino and Regina Madigan, who um, are members of that committee, reached out to Arthur Liverant, who has worked with us for a number of years, and his staff member, Kevin. And they started really talking and looking. In fact, Kevin made a trip up 
to Maine to look at them in in person, which, uh, you know, Maine is close, but not that close. It was quite the trip. Arthur Liverant is a third generation antique dealer. Uh, his family owns Nathan Liverant and Son, which is out in Colchester. And they have been premier antique dealers in Connecticut in the entire Northeast. And they, they're the kind of antique dealers who care passionately about their objects and they do a tremendous amount of research to really uh, make sure that they are authentic. And when we ask them to get involved, they instantly, I mean, they, they love this stuff. And so we immediately started breaking them down. We really were being incredibly skeptical. So what kinds of questions were you asking about these portraits? As we're looking at them, you know, they're slightly different sizes. They're not exactly completely the same size. So so are they a pair? Are they a pair? Aaron, we're going to call him Aaron at this point. Aaron Chapin has this sort of beveled oval that's kind of, it's dark, but it has this Mm -hmm. oval around in the background where she's like a painted mat. A painted mat, right. It's a great description. Where she does not, she's in, she has a lighter oval, but she doesn't have that, that ring around it. Um, so that was, you know, definitely a question we wanted to look at. Are they really potentially paintings from the early 1800s? You know, you start looking at her clothing and the style. Okay. But is, is the frame really an old frame? Is the painting, has it ever been outside of the frame? Is it mismatched? So there's a lot of construction details that they were looking at, um, condition, the style um, of painting, the application, the brushstroke, just a, a range of really just first, before we even get into who are these people looking at these paintings and saying, are they really paintings from the 1800s? And this is where we we always bring in other people because this is a case of more minds are better than one. And you need to be maybe a very much an expert in a particular era. Like Mary is just very beautifully painted. There's a lot of detail here from her bonnet and silver. You can tell it's kind of a satin, shiny uh, ribbon around her head, but very delicately painted. I interpret it as a lace ruff to the bonnet mm-hmm. that's painted in almost an, uh, a very impressionist not at all these impressionist paintings. They're very realistic, but just little tiny dots of that white paint to make the like give you that impression, impression of, of lace, the shiny bow that's holding the bonnet, that nice silvery gray color. And then she has this fur cuff around her neck, this sort of drape, fur drape shawl almost. It seems very um, unusual to me. Not that I'm an expert, but that seems unusual. It's very beautifully painted. You can tell it's fur. You can absolutely tell that it's, that it's fur. And so then you're like, okay, well, she's choosing... To have their their they this couple are choosing to have their portraits done, and you want to represent yourself in the best life. So she's choosing to put this fur on her Sunday best. Uh, her Sunday best. So that implies a level of wealth um, and access to goods that maybe someone else wouldn't have. She's definitely wearing um, very fine clothing and painted sort of a solemn. You know, she's mm-hmm. not smiling, which is not uncommon, but just a. A really nice gaze, I think. Both of their eyes have a very nice gaze to them. And then Aaron, he uh, is much more simple in his clothing, but the painter's taken a lot of care, particularly with the faces. The eyes, I think, are very, very nice. There's a little bit of brightness to them. His ear gets a little funky. It's not as well (laughs) painted, (laughs) not as sharply painted, but it's still... 
I think most people ignore that. I've stared at these for a while, so I start noticing every single defect. When I first looked at them, I didn't notice that ear at first. I, I really was drawn into his eyes. When our friends from Nathan Laverne and Son went to Maine and looked at these, what, what did they feel? What, what was their result? Kevin Tulemary came back with a resounding, these are the real thing. These are definitely early 1800s portraits. He felt that they were a pair. He thought that the note on the back had been there for a long time, maybe not 1800, but maybe early 20th century, so early 1900s, but you know, was not something that someone just slapped on the back in the past week or two. And so with him coming back and giving us that, that seal of approval, then we started doing even more research. Okay, do we know of any other portraits out there that might have be slightly mismatched in size or have that interesting oval ring around the man, but no painted oval ring around the woman. And so these were some questions that Kevin Farino, who's the chair of our collections committee, went and he talked to people from Historic Deerfield and from Windsor Historical Society. And they started pointing us in the direction of looking into the painter Joseph Stewart, who was a Hartford painter. And there is another pair of portraits. And we contacted the organization that has that those portraits and we looked at those and sure enough the man has that same painted oval in his portrait and the the woman does not and so putting these all together it made us really go from we're not even sure if these are authentic paintings to these are definitely a pair of portraits from the early 1800s most likely painted by Joseph Stewart and we felt confident that they were Aaron and Mary Chapin, confident enough to place a bid at the auction. The other pair of portraits are actually at Connecticut Landmarks, Butler McCook House and Garden in Hartford. So that's really, really cool that you go to a sister organization in town. So they have this pair, Mr. and Mrs. James Bull, that those had definitely been attributed to Stuart. They, of course, uh, anyone who's familiar with the, the Butler Cook House knows that they have copious documentation of just about everything in that house and collection, and it all came down through the family directly to the Connecticut landmark. So those portraits, they helped you put two and two together there because they were documented as Stuart. Right. So to have that other pair, was it was the icing on the cake. You know, it really was like, okay, this is the attribution. We feel 100% confident. Needless to say, Stuart didn't sign his Painting. Correct. Is there is as as far as we have we can tell at this point, there's no signature in either painting. So this is a case where through this research we've had to attribute it to him, but, but very confident that that is the real deal. And then you also you had mentioned you turned to the Windsor Historical Society uh, then curator Christina Vita and historic Deerfield curator Christine Rittock, who could all also put pieces together in this mystery. Right. It was real teamwork. It was a whole group of us uh, uh, curators and people knowledgeable in, in the 19th century portraiture to come together and solve this mystery. The, I will say the added piece is after we were successful at the auction and they came to our collection, I was able to contact the auction house and say that they're in our collection now and we love them if there was any information that they could provide about the consigner that we would love to have that for our records and does the consigner have any documentation 
that these are really who they are, just additional. And they came back. We, we, to this day, we do not know who the consigner is. We've had no communication with the consigner, but the auction house was the conduit who said that the consigner is a descendant of Aaron and Mary Chapin. So that piece of information completely solidified this. Right. If that person is listening, we're just very happy that these portraits are here, that they can be paired up with the objects of furniture that we have made by made by Aaron and that they complete the story. So where does the funding come from for an acquisition like this? We have funds set aside for acquisition. Some of those come from donations that people make a donation and specifically say we want this to go towards the acquisition and care of the collection. We also, over the years, when we deaccession items from the collection, when we have gone through our very uh, long process of deciding that an object no longer meets our mission and, and we need to remove it and make space for new things to come into the collection. Sometimes those are deaccessioned through auction and then funds raised from that auction then go back into acquiring new objects. And so we are very fortunate you know, we're a 191-year-old organization, so uh, we're very fortunate that we have acquisition funds available to us that allow us to go after something. I mean, this, we were notified at the end of October. The auction was November 14th. If we didn't have those funds at the ready, we might have missed this opportunity. So uh, it's really wonderful, thanks to all of our donors over the course of our history, that we, we have those monies available. These are currently not on view, they're in storage, but you did say there is a way for people to come see them. They are in our painting storage facility. Aaron Chapin has uh, some conservation issues and we are currently going after some funds to get him conserved. His canvas is starting to come away from the backing and uh, we want to make sure that we can keep him around for a while. But we offer behind the scenes tours and so they would definitely be shown during a behind-the-scenes collection highlights tour. So if you look at our website, you can see. And if you have a group that ever wants to come and do a behind-the-scenes tour, we arrange those as well. And uh, then you get to uh, see more than just what's on display and sometimes some real goodies pop out. Thank you for sharing this story with our readers. For information on visiting the Historical Society, so visit chs.org. And to read about the Zimri Moody High Boy in the summer 2016 issue that I mentioned at the top of the segment, visit ctexplore.org. Learn more about Nathan Liverand and Sons in Connecticut Explored's story In Search of the Great Find at ctexplore.org backslash listen. Next up, Jennifer LaRue, editor of Connecticut Explored, visits the Pleasant Valley Drive-In in the little town of Bark Hampstead. Hello, how are Hi. you? Well, how are you? Good, two? Two of us, please. Is 20, please? There you go. Thank and you. please park at a yellow pole, okay? okay? Have a nice night. We're going to, thank you. Big crowd. We're here at the Pleasant Valley Drive-In in Bark Hampstead, Connecticut, waiting to see tonight's feature films. There's a crowd of about, I don't know, 300 people here. Um, people tailgating. A lot of the trucks are parked facing away from the movie screen up there so that people can sit on the backs of them and watch the, the movies. I wouldn't have thought of that. So we've paid our money at the little ticket booth. It um, was $10 a person. 
and uh, in a minute we're going to make our way over to the snack bar, and then we're going to tune our radios to 87.9 FM and wait for the show to start. Now, uh, I recommend if anybody is going to come out to the Pleasant Valley Drive-In that they leave a little earlier than we did because most of the spaces are taken up and we're parked way in the back. So we're at the concession stand where they have hamburgers and cheeseburgers, hot dogs, mozzarella sticks, a clam boat, all kinds of good stuff, candy and ice cream. And they accept cash only. That's important um, to get into the theater itself and to get anything at the snack bar. You need cash. Pleasant Valley is, along with drive-ins in Southington and Mansfield, one of just three such theaters still operating in Connecticut and one of fewer than 400 across the country. It's the smallest, accommodating just 250 cars on a three-acre lot, and having opened as Rogers Corners Drive-In in 1947, it's the oldest of those that remain in the state. The first drive-in in the U.S. opened in New Jersey in 1933. By the time the industry peaked in 1958, there were more than 4,000 across the country, 40 of them in Connecticut. Today, only about 350 exist nationwide. Their rise was literally fueled by America's love affair with the automobile and by the relative freedoms the drive-in afforded. Kids could run around on the grounds like they're doing tonight or snuggle in the back seat in their PJs. Grown-ups could relax in the comfort of their car, where they could eat, smoke, and enjoy the summer evening air. Everyone could gobble popcorn and other snacks in the privacy of their cars. And teenagers, well, we all know what teenagers do at the drive-in. By the mid to late 1970s, though, rising gas prices and the near-universal switch to daylight saving time, which forced later start times for drive-in movies, they can't show them till after twilight, right, began to erode the appeal of the drive-in picture show. Perhaps the biggest threat was sprawl. All those relatively untouched rural acres were very attractive to developers. Most of all, of course, technology took its toll as DVDs, Netflix, and other easily accessible modes of movie viewing emerged. Pleasant Valley was, like so many drive-ins, destined for doom. But Donna McGrain wasn't going to stand by and watch that happen. McGrain bought the drive-in, over her family's objections, in 1995 and has kept it running ever summer since. She tackled one of the biggest problems facing drive-in movie theaters, movie studios' decision to stop producing film reels in favor of digital versions by replacing the outmoded reel-to-reel projection equipment to the tune of $80,000. That allowed Pleasant Valley to compete with standard movie theaters by showing first-run films. As a bonus, every showing, Thursday through Sunday nights through the fall, until the warm weather runs out, is a double feature including such popular films as the new Ghostbusters movie, which we're seeing tonight. Still, the drive-in movie business remains precarious, and Pleasant Valley relies on customer loyalty and people's sense of nostalgia to keep the gates open. Historic preservation comes in many forms. You can help keep this piece of Connecticut history alive just by enjoying a night at the movies under the stars. Oh, wait, the movie's about to start. Shh. Talk to you later. Fascinated by Connecticut's summertime car culture? Listen to Grading the Nutmeg, episode number 10, to hear Mary Donahue's Shack Attack podcast story. And for more about Connecticut and cars, check out Chris Dobbs and Nancy Albert's story in the spring 2006 Connecticut Explored and Donahue's piece about the Berlin Turnpike, A Hip Road Trip, in our winter 2010-2011 issue. Find links to these stories at ConnecticutExplored.org. And for information on visiting the Pleasant Valley Drive-In, visit PleasantValleyDriveInMovies.com. 
The theater is open Thursday through Sunday from early spring through early fall. Are you a millennial, Gen Xer, baby boomer, or member of the silent generation? Well, this summer and fall, you've got a chance to relive your childhood at the Connecticut Historical Society's special exhibition, Growing Up in Connecticut. Here's Connecticut Explored publisher Elizabeth Norman to give us a sneak preview. This is Elizabeth Norman, publisher of Connecticut Explored, here for grading the nutmeg. I'm here today with Ben Gamble, lead exhibit developer at the Connecticut Historical Society, and Eileen Frank, the chief curator. And we're talking about their special exhibition on view this summer and into the fall called Growing Up in Connecticut. One of the main goals of the exhibit uh, was to get people from different generations to have conversations with each other. We wanted people to come, parents with their kids, grandparents with their grandkids. So we thought about what are some of the questions that might get conversations going. Another main goal was to reach out around Connecticut and gather stories from people around the state. A lot of the development was us going out and interviewing people or asking people to share their stories or their objects um, from growing up. So the exhibit is really a lot of different stories, a lot of different ages, and a lot of questions to get people to respond and, and talk to each other about what was it like when you were a kid. Hopefully, you know, kids are asking their parents as they go through the exhibit. So you've defined this, or you, you sort of uh, bookended the eras that you're talking about, of four generations of childhood, roughly from the 1930s to the 1990s. So that includes the silent generation, which is from 1928 to 1945, the baby boomers, 1946 to 1964, and Generation X from 1965 to 1980 or so, and then Millennials, 1981 to... Uh, you, you end it in 1996. Sometimes it goes a little bit further yeah. into around 2000 or so. So that does get multiple generations. And when you first walk in the gallery, one of the things I noticed was a wall in which uh, the different generations are able to talk about what was special about their generation. And actually, one of the things that I noticed right off is there's a lot of yellow stickies in this exhibition, which seemed very unusual for a museum exhibition. Well, a lot of this exhibit is we hoped it would be generated by visitors who come. And so we have stories we've gathered from people. We've tried to put the objects and the stories into context, but we also want people to add to the exhibit. So it's really Connecticut visitors telling their story of how they grew up. So... Really, the, one of the easiest ways to do that was in the exhibit was sticky notes. So we've asked questions for people to respond. So they literally, you've got pencils, they write their notes on it, they stick it on the wall. Right. And we started, as you said, we started that off with the question, what makes your generation unique? And uh, there have been a lot of really fascinating responses. I think the, the day after the exhibit opened, I, you know, I walked through and looked at some of the, the sticky notes that had been put up. One of the things that struck out to me was um, a lot of the millennial responses were about student loans. I, I thought My first thought was, well, I'm Generation X. I had student loans too. Yeah. Um, but that is, that is a big issue for millennials. So things like that that we didn't even address in the exhibit you know, people, we, we got people to think about, um, you know, what's important to their generation, and they responded, which is what we're hoping for. So we are standing in this gallery where people from different generations are able to write 
on a sticky note and put on the wall to answer the questions, what makes your generation unique? And some of these are poignant. So we'll start with this silent generation. We were the last generation to experience real innocence. We played out in the neighborhood until it got dark. We grew up feeling safe. No one worried about predators or crime in neighborhoods. And my generation, we learned to play outside most of the time. We, we learned what it was not to have a lot of money and to work for what we wanted. The silent generation, they're the kids who were too young to serve during the war. As you can see, they're ages 71 okay. to 88 today. Okay. So they really experienced the Great Depression as kids. What are some of the other ones here that stood out for you? There's some pop culture. I like uh, somebody here wrote, as a baby boomer living in the 80s, great original music, Duran Duran, Disco, Prince, Bruce, Bon Jovi, uh, Greed is Good, which I think is the Wall Street uh, movie, uh, Mr. Gorbachev, Bring Down Your Walls, quoting Ronald Reagan. It's interesting because I actually relate to a lot of those and I'm Generation X, which mm-hmm. shows you really the overlap. Uh, there is a lot of overlap, which actually is a really neat thing to show how you know we have a lot of things in common, even though we may hmm. come from different generations. Well, I was thinking the same thing. I'm a baby boomer, but I spent a lot of my childhood um, uh, playing outside. I definitely was still in that generation where your mom said, go out and play. Uh, But then when you get down to Generation X, uh, this one, first generation raised on identity politics. This, I thought, was incredibly poignant. Schools stopped teaching us that America was something to celebrate. Instead, we were supposed to be ashamed of our heritage. So as a person in the history field, I'm like, wow, we've got our work to do. Uh, And then, as you say, the millennials, several people had mentioned student loans and... Social media... Someone mentioned the lack of personal relationships due to social media. And so the threat of technology was definitely noted in a number of these, which is, is certainly a difference between the generations, for mm-hmm. sure. You look at uh, how many sticky notes we have for each generation, which I found kind of interesting. Uh, the baby boomers, there are a lot, which is no surprise. It's we have a lot of opinions about A lot of everything. opinions, and, and it's a big uh, cohort. It's a big cohort. Millennials are just as big. In fact, millennials, uh, they, as far as I understand, they just passed, as far as population numbers, mm-hmm. they passed baby boomers. Um, not many for Generation X, which I sort of like because we're the small generation, cynical, that don't show up for stuff. Um, or, so, or, or so your reputation That's the is, stereotype is anyway, such, yes. so I like that. Yeah. Um, and then the silent generation is also a small group, yeah. um, so, so six, not as many. Yeah, 6% of the population you have here, so you have the relative size of each generation at this moment, I assume. Yeah. Right. And then this last section here, which almost seems like has the most stickies, <laughs> um, this, the ones that follow uh, post-1996 or to 2000, the post-millennials, has not been named as far as I read, but you've called them the I generation or the digital natives, 20, also 24% of the population, so ages 0 to 19, yep. so kids. Yep, and we didn't focus on them in gathering stories for this exhibit, uh, but you know you can see with the responses they've left that they're coming and are interested in the exhibit too, so yep. that's great. We have uh, a section that's really all about appearance. Um, how did you dress? This was a really fun section to put together. We gathered uh, clothing from different generations. Some people lent us the clothing that they actually wore. Um, and then in other circumstances, we brought out pieces from our collection um, or went out and found some. So 
people really respond to this. And then we ask a question at the end of this, you know, what was your style when you were a kid? This section here is about the people who influenced you growing up, mostly focused on family, but in general, you know, who are the people, who are your heroes? We asked that question to the people that we interviewed. We interviewed about 35 uh, people from around Connecticut of different ages um, about growing up in Connecticut. So one of the questions was, you know, who was someone who influenced you? Probably 90% of people mentioned their mom or their dad, um, but then there were also heroes and, you know, a few pop culture icons, that kind of thing. So, And then a few very interesting objects. We had a millennial who shared with us um, a painting she did. It's a traditional Tibetan painting, and uh, she worked with her father to uh, learn how to do this uh, painting. And really, the, the reason she wanted to do it was really to connect with her uh, Tibetan roots. So lots of very different kinds of stories. And here you have a video screen where you can put on a pair of headphones and listen to people telling their own stories. And, of course, lots of stickies. Yes. Always more stickies. So you've got this gallery here we've just moved into that uh, a certain generation will remember that will take them immediately back to the rumpus room or the, the play room in the basement with the fake wood paneling on the walls and the big, huge TV, and you've got some vintage posters on the wall and stuff. But you've tried to cover a couple of different generations here, which is kind of neat. We have an old TV playing um, a a documentary about uh, old TV shows. And then we have a newer TV with a um, newer yet older uh, video game system, the uh, Coleco, Coleco Flashback. It's a reproduction of the original Coleco uh, video game system that was made in Connecticut. Like Connecticut made, yeah. So people might recognize that. And you can sit down and you can you can sit in a beanbag and play the game if you want. Most, most uh, people don't need uh, instructions. They sit down and they pick Figure it up. It out. You had said earlier that this timeline that you have in this room is one of the most popular parts of the exhibition. It starts with 1928, so the earliest of the silent generation, year by year by year. It's been very popular. People have really responded to it, which we wanted them to. It, the, the events are just you know national events, and we just wanted to use this to jog people's memories. And we asked them, do you remember where you were? when this happened? Or does this event on the timeline remind you of an important event in your life? And we've asked people to share. So people have been writing, either responding to some of the events they see. For instance, we have the Hartford Circus Fire. In 1944, we have somebody who wrote a, um, a note remembering um, when they were a kid when that happened. And then we have uh, people coming up with their own um, memories on various dates, um, you know, an event that they remember or an important event in their life. This person here, 19, added to 1953, in Weekly Reader, there was an article about telephones that you would see the person you were talking to. The future predicted. <laughs> we also have um, iPads, two iPads on the timeline that have short clips of some of the interviews we did with people. So mm -hmm. these are short uh, videos people talking about various um, topics in history. So, for instance, we've got people talking about Martin Luther King. Um, we've got a video about 9-11. People remember where they were when that happened. 
proud moments. Mostly those are personal moments, but also uh, political moments that make people proud. And here in the last gallery, lots of things about pop culture, movies, music, toys. A lot of these things were uh, contributed by Yes. Uh, yeah, lots of toys. This is the toy room, the fun room, the pop culture room. This is where people really step in and are like, oh, wow, I remember that. I remember having that, or I remember reading that, or playing with that. We actually did a few different things to gather items. We did we created a website where people could um, submit objects that are important to them from their childhood, and then we subsequently contacted those people and were able to borrow some things. We also... Um, had a couple of collecting days in various places in the state. So two things about that. One is uh, the online gallery people can still contribute to, right? So if they go to your website, chs.org, and go to this current exhibition about growing up in Connecticut, they'll find a way to add their story or their picture or contribute to that. Yes, absolutely. We hope that will keep growing throughout the run of the exhibit. And the other is this technique of kind of talking with people and gathering from and around the state. You've used this for a couple of exhibitions. For this exhibit, mostly we tried to engage individuals with their personal objects, although we did also engage a couple of historical societies. The Vintage uh, Communications and Radio Museum in Windsor, uh, they lent us quite a few technology items. So people should, if they're interested in participating in the future, they should sort of watch out for what you, what kind of topic area you might be exploring in the future, and if you're issuing that invitation to participate uh, it's been working. People are responding to it. In some ways, you never know what you're going to get, and that's yeah. kind of exciting. It's Growing Up in Connecticut is on view through October 15, 2016. And to find out more about visiting the Connecticut Historical Society, visit chs.org. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Eileen Frank and Ben Gamble of the Connecticut Historical Society and Pleasant Valley Drive-In. You can hear all the Grading the Nutmeg episodes and subscribe to Grading the Nutmeg in the iTunes Store podcast section. To read stories featured in Grading the Nutmeg and to subscribe to Connecticut Explored or purchase the current or a back issue, visit ctexplored.org. I'm Walt Woodward, and we'll catch you next time on Grading the Nutmeg.